I think one of the hardest parts about having a mental illness is how alone you feel. And then now you and a lot of other people are being very public and people actually get to say, okay, there's this person out there. They get what I'm going through. They get what I get. Um, they have similar feelings. You know, I'm not alone. You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. I'm your host, Hunter Keegan, and I'm proud to say I found another doctor who was gracious enough to appear on the show. For today's installment, I speak with Dr. Amy DeRamus, a licensed psychologist based in Chicago. She holds a PsyD. A PsyD is a special type of doctorate degree that is similar to a PhD, except that its coursework focuses more heavily on the clinical and applied aspects of psychology, such as talk therapy and working directly with clients, whereas PhD programs that you've probably traditionally heard of typically place more emphasis on academia and scholarly research. So that is the distinction there. They're both doctorate degrees. They both require a lot of higher level education. And um, yeah, so Amy kills it. And I actually met her several years ago when we were appearing as guests on another mental health advocacy podcast. We since stayed in touch, exchanging copies of our new books and other projects over the years. In addition to working directly with her clients as a clinician, she is a professor at Harold Washington College. She actually has incorporated one of my books, my 2020 memoir, My Brain is Trying to Kill Me, as part of her course curriculum, which is pretty mind-blowing. The notion that college students are reading and learning from my work is pretty frickin' cool. But enough about me. In this installment of Bipolar Recorder, Amy shares her expert insight on trauma recovery, bipolar disorders intersection with family dynamics, and also discusses her upcoming book about OCD and relationships. This conversation was very enlightening for me, and I learned a couple of new things myself. Amy has a great worldly perspective on mental health treatment, and I was so excited when we were able to book her for the show. With that, let's get started. Today, I would like to welcome Dr. Amy Doremus to the show. Amy is a clinical psychologist based in Chicago. She primarily specializes in treating depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and trauma. She has been kind enough to spend some time with me today to talk about mental health and well-being. Amy, how are you doing this afternoon? Good. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. It's such an honor to have you here. I wanted to start by asking, what got you interested in the field of psychology? This is always 
kind of a fun question because it's like not at first it wasn't like a big mission like I have this intense thing I have to do you know I was you know young like 19-ish when I first started thinking about it and you know tended to be kind of easily bored and I'm looking at career choices like okay what is going to keep my attention and mean something and last and not you know something where you know as I have a tendency to do, lose interest in something pretty quickly. So it was going to be psychology and history. Okay. One of those two. And I kind of looked at kind of the career projections. Like what are my chances of ever paying off my student loans? Mm-hmm. Um, so that made it psychology. And early on, one of my teachers helped me get a job at a treatment facility for people who had been convicted of violent crimes, but they were in that kind of a facility because they also had a serious mental illness wow. that had affected why they were committing violent crimes. Yeah. What was that like as your introduction to the the field, like your first real kind of exposure to the that sort of population or that environment? What What was your reaction like? I mean, it was fascinating. It was intense. There are definitely rough days. I got kind of a light introduction because um, at first it was more of an undergraduate internship. Mm-hmm. And all I had to do was um, run a group teaching them basic social skills. Okay. So that was kind of a light introduction. Um, and then that went well enough that when summer came and the internship was done, they offered me a job. And that's when I was really working one-on-one with people kind of in their living space. Okay. Um, Very interesting. These days, now that you have all of this experience, a wide range of experience under your belt, what's your favorite aspect of being a clinical psychologist? I think it's the situations where I'm part of that community. Okay. So private practice is really interesting, but it's um, still that kind of like, okay, we meet for an hour and then we both go have our own lives. And then there's sometimes kind of the community mental health settings that I've worked in where, you know, as long as I'm not with somebody, they can just pop into my office and say hi, or ask a question about something, or I can go down, you know, during their lunch hour to see how they're doing or their community activities and things where lives are a little more merged. Okay. I'm a little bit more of kind of an everyday part of what they're doing with their recovery, as opposed to somebody that they see for like an hour or two every week in a very specific setting. That's very cool. You have more of like an integration yeah. with their treatment in that mm-hmm. capacity. That's so cool. Before the uh, um, show, you know, of course, we corresponded a little bit and you actually were kind enough to pass along your CV. Mm-hmm. And I took a look at uh, what you had included on there. And I saw that you had emphasized your experience with uh, treating people who have had traumatic experiences mm-hmm. in their lives. So I wanted to transition to that and ask a really broad spanning question first, which is what exactly is trauma? That is actually the perfect question to ask because the answer right now is that that answer is changing. So a couple of years ago, it would have been something simpler. Trauma is anything that impacts you enough that it changes your sense of safety in the world, not just in a certain situation, but overall, but also often your sense of reality and your sense of identity. Um, And it has certain specific problems that go with it, like dissociation, 
um, intrusive thoughts or memories or flashbacks, the mm-hmm. need to avoid certain things because they're triggering. Um, so basic definition of trauma, pretty close to, but not identical to kind of the DSM definition of PTSD. Okay. Um, now, you know, after COVID, after a lot of the political events of the last few years, um, you know, as mental health professionals and definitely just sometimes average people who never even saw themselves potentially being in a traumatic situation before, you know, I'm realizing and other people are realizing that our definitions of trauma and especially the way we do therapy for trauma, assume that the trauma is over and you're safe now. Yeah. So somebody with trauma feels unsafe. The assumption is, okay, but it's safe now. And part of the therapy is going to be helping them to really realize that and feel that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now we've been introduced to the idea of like, in a much, much different way than most of us ever have. Getting very close to this idea there that some traumas don't go away. We're going to be living with things like the fallout from COVID, the fallout from the war in Europe, um, the racial and sexual, especially aspects of politics the last few years. So, well, kind of that original definition of trauma is still pretty good. Right now, we still have to integrate kind of an entire existential component to it that acknowledges sometimes the trauma doesn't go away. And what in the world are we supposed to do when we can't make that assumption that it's safe for them to feel safe? Yeah, that's very, yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. And it's interesting. You mentioned a couple of things that I had some reactions to. One of Mm -hmm. them was that there's the notion that trauma can actually change your self-concept or your mm-hmm. self-identity. Right. Could you expand a little bit more on that? Is there mm-hmm. an example that comes to mind of an uh, individual who may be having that type of experience? I mean, the most obvious is somebody who has been in some kind of a traumatic situation since childhood. They have been entirely shaped by trauma to the point that they don't really have a strong idea of who they would be without those experiences. So childhood trauma, um, CPTSD, complex PTSD is that sense of a person who has been, who can't remember probably a life before trauma, or at least it's been so long that, and they were so young that their whole personality is shaped by it to be different than it otherwise would have been. Um, But it also can change your identity in the sense that people might have had a lot more confidence in themselves, in the space they live in. Um, Just that sense of, you know, I have this place where I feel safe. I have these spaces in my life where I feel completely confident. Um, And then something happens out of nowhere Mm -hmm. that can kind of shatter that confidence. Right. That sense that there are safe spaces. It throws their whole um, perception of right. what what is safe, what is not safe, mm-hmm. where am I safe, right. where are the boundaries between a safe and unsafe situation. Um, and even who you are in, in a certain space. Like, if you assume that you're safe in your own home, uh-huh. um, you do different things when you get home from work. 
you know, um, you change clothes, you read a book, you watch TV. Um, if suddenly something happens where home does not feel safe, just coming home from work and deciding what you're going to do with that evening can change. Right. Yeah, I've had um, in my own life, just from my own lived experience, I've had issues with OCD where I did not feel safe in my own home. I, I didn't feel safe anywhere effectively. And just imagine how distressing that was. I It was tremendously impactful on like my life functioning and it, it was really, really disruptive. Mm -hmm. So that kind of segues into the next question, which is, does trauma always have to be physical or physical safety related? Or is there also a psychological component to it as well, such as imagining that you are unsafe? Yeah, there's there's definitely that psych component because people feel safe in situations that objectively are completely safe. So like to follow up on that one, you know, you're sitting in your house there's nothing unsafe going on. Um, the weather's fine. Nothing's going on in the neighborhood. Um, nothing disruptive with the neighbors. There's nobody here that is threatening in any way. So by every possible objective measure, you're safe, but you don't feel like it. And people, from, they know they're safe. They know on some kind of abstract intellectual level, nothing is going on, but their brain has been so activated kind of for hypervigilance and hyper alertness. Um, or in your ca case, like you said, with the OCD, the obsessions that they can look around and say, I am absolutely safe and absolutely no part of them feels like that. Uh -huh. So that's the psychological component to it. Sometimes I feel like we don't actively realize how deeply those psychological psychological events or even those physical events mm -hmm. impact us. And mm -hmm. something that I've found over the years through being in therapy is that I have had traumatic experiences that I didn't even really realize mm -hmm. were tra traumatic until my therapist kind of pointed it out. So I have a question for you on that note, which is how could someone tell if they've been through a traumatizing experience? Like if they walked away from something thinking that they may be okay, but are carrying those psychological scars or wounds with them. There's a lot there. So if somebody has some awareness of it, like it's conscious, you might be able to look back and see, okay, how was I changed by this event? Because every event that scares you, every event where you're unsafe in some way is not necessarily traumatic. The trauma is that that way in which you're changed. Your identity, mm -hmm. your sense of safety is changed. So if somebody's conscious enough to say, okay, yeah, that that event or you know that situation that I was in for a while really changed me in a way that feels damaging. That's one thing, but it's not always conscious. Um, a lot of times trauma shows up as physical symptoms even if the trauma itself wasn't physical. Okay. Um, chronic pain disorders, like chronic fatigue syndrome, things like that. Okay. There are huge, huge, um, like well over 50% of people with that disorder reporting trauma histories. Wow. So, but you can also have those pains from trauma without even realizing anything traumatic happened. Huh. So sometimes that's the first clue, pains that won't go away, migraines or chronic fatigue syndrome, 
um, or things like that. Um, another one is trauma can look like classic textbook anxiety or classic textbook depression. It doesn't always show up as PTSD or something like that. But if nothing is making it go away, every reasonable treatment has been tried, both individually and in combination. The doctors have been talking to each other. Um, there is something else there going on, and trauma is one of the biggest things that you would look for. Um, and that might be in a situation where this person doesn't consciously realize they've been traumatized, and you kind of have to go exploring for that. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. I had never even thought of the connection between the physical, like pain symptoms, mm -hmm. that psychosomatic kind of reaction mm -hmm. to the trauma. I had never heard of that before. So uh, thank you for that. And another thing that comes to mind is what are the key things that survivors of trauma should understand about the recovery process? We were mentioning earlier that the uh, definitions of trauma are changing mm -hmm. and the outlook and uh, way that recovery is tracked may be changing as well. So what should people understand right now? Like someone who has PTSD, is is there any kind of guiding principle or something they could keep in mind as they continue to go through their treatment? Yeah. And the first one that comes to mind um, is just that you are not to blame for that. And that sounds simple. It's not. Um, there are a lot of different kinds of traumas, including like purely mental traumas, like gaslighting, where there's something about that situation where people are made to feel blamed for it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of the classic, um, well, if you didn't want to get attacked, why were you dressed like that? Why were you alone on a dark street? Sure. I don't know too many women who haven't heard that one. And right. I'm sure there's a version of it for men who've been attacked too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you might've been manipulated in a certain situation to believe that you were to blame for this. Uh, but also blame is about control as painful as it as it is to blame yourself for something it's also the belief that i have this completely under control because if i can figure out how not to be like this problem solved and i will be able to make the bad things never happen again mm -hmm. and so blame is both a really terrible thing that's put on people with trauma and something that in some ways it's easy to believe not just because you've been pressured to but because it does give you that very teeny tiny piece of comfort that if I can just figure out how to stop this, if I can change me enough, then, you know, maybe things will be better. Maybe I can stop this. Right. Uh, and it, or make it not happen again. And of course, people always want to feel like they have that locus of yeah. control. So it's only human to, mm -hmm. to want to feel that way. Yeah. Um, but it's also so necessary to recovery to put responsibility where it actually belongs as a, so that you can start to move on, recover, let your, you know, let yourself, you know, come back from that trauma. Find yourself again after the, uh, after the inciting events, I guess. Mm -hmm. So what has traditional trauma treatment been like and what is it like now as so much is changing with what we understand about it? So 20 years ago, this would have been like when I was in school, um, 
or just out of school, it was a lot of it was about what was called critical incident stress debriefing. Um, and it was about talking through the memories in a kind of um, in a way that kind of started back with Freud. Mm-hmm. And there was this belief that starting as soon after the trauma as possible, the best thing to do was to talk about the memories as much as possible to work through it that way. And there was kind of a cognitive behavioral therapy style exposure piece to that too. You um, still is an EMDR at times. Um, you bring that map memory back, but you learn how not to have the same beliefs and feelings about it. Um, today's research, even before COVID, is, okay, we probably want to stay away from working directly with memories unless there's a very specific reason to. So, like, if I'm doing doing an intake, I need enough information about the trauma to work with. But I also understand almost nobody gives you the, the full story in the intake because trust needs to be built up. So, um, you know, I'll say things like, okay, um, one thing I need to know is if, um, you have any kind of a trauma history, um, just give me as much as information as you feel comfortable with now, you know, it's okay not to talk about it right now, if you're ready. Um, and if you don't want to talk about it at all, it does help me out a lot. If you can just say, yeah, there was something, but I'm not going there right now. Right. Um, to kind of set that up that, yes, I need to know about the trauma, but at your pace, because right. there is a lot of research now that too much working with memory can actually increase symptoms of PTSD, mm-hmm. increase symptoms of trauma. Um, right. So even going into tr- uh, COVID for a long time, the focus had shifted to how is it affecting your life? How is it affecting your experience of being inside your own mind and how can we heal those things? And that doesn't usually require a lot of working with the direct memories. Okay. Is it more about like working with your reactions to the memories then? Mm-hmm. Or okay. your react or the leftover reactions to everyday life. Sometimes something will trigger you. Yeah. And, you know, first how to handle that trigger with like surface level coping skills, but then you know, when you're ready, taking a look a few steps back, okay, what are the common themes between stuff that's triggering you? Would you mind explaining a little bit more about EMDR and CBT? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know as much about EB, um, EMDR. It's never been a favorite modality of mine, but basically it is about bringing back like memories or flashbacks of idea or ideas, and then also distracting yourself at the same time. So like with um, tapping your fingers or other hand movements or eye movements that will help to kind of distract and maybe connect those traumatic thoughts or memories with something neutral, like tapping your finger or moving your eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a pretty evidence-based treatment. Like I said, not my favorite just because there's a lot of working with memories that may not be absolutely necessary, but you know, a lot of people have gotten a lot out of it. Um, CBT is also good. It's usually not that great for trauma all by itself, just because the trauma goes so deep. It's physical, it's emotional. Um, so I use a lot of CBT, but it's usually not the only thing I use because it'll help a lot with the traumatic thoughts. And learning how to, you know, resist letting those thoughts rule your life. 
mm-hmm. um, and getting used to slowly and carefully acting in a non-traumatized way. Things like setting boundaries with people or going someplace that maybe makes you a little nervous. Um, one thing about CBT that I'm hearing a lot about lately that I've been kind of integrating into the way I use it is that a lot of people are kind of sour on it right now because it makes them feel blamed because CBT does have a very intense focus on personal responsibility. And, you know, that's legit. If you've been traumatized, more feeling blamed is not what you need. Mm-hmm. But um, it's also a really, really good, really important part of treatment for a lot of people. So just kind of shaping the way I do CBT to say, you know, it's not fair that this got put on you. It is not your fault. You are not to blame. Unfortunately, this thing happened and, you know, some of the CBT techniques can help. And if somebody is dead set against CBT, there are always other ways to do things. But it can be a pretty useful tool if you're careful to make sure that that person doesn't feel blamed by it. Right. And something that almost like a subtext to that I'm kind of gathering as I listen to you speak is how much emphasis that you as a clinician put on making sure that your patient is comfortable with the type of modalities that you're using and that you're working mutually together to find an effective treatment plan with them. That's just kind of uh, another thought that came to mind uh, just based off of the way that you discuss these types of topics. Definitely. Yeah. I only treat like a very narrow range of things. Like sometimes the therapist will have a, a favorite modality and they'll learn how to treat pretty much everything within that modality. Like somebody really loves CBT or they really love some version of psychoanalysis and they will use that very broadly. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, they're probably more skilled than I am in any specific modality. I only treat like a very narrow range of problems in that kind of chronic mental illness area. Mm -hmm. But with that, I want to have multiple ways of doing it just because there's no one modality that works for everybody. And sometimes a mix of different ones can work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like as many different tools as you can have in the toolkit, the better, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's different types of symptomology that you'll experience that are going to require different types of things. For example, if you're having really bad intrusive thoughts, I've heard that it's not always a good idea to try meditation because it kind of leaves you alone with your thoughts. And in that particular example, maybe a distraction technique like cooking would be better. Um, So definitely all sorts of different approaches that can be taken. And I also just, um, again, just wanted to highlight the importance of that professional uh, relationship between the client and the therapist. I think that's really great stuff. Thanks. And just a lot of my clients, they've been through therapy before and they have some ideas about what works for them and what doesn't. Like, okay, I've tried this thing over here 11 billion times. Every therapist I've ever had has wanted to try it. It's never really done anything for me. Mm -hmm. That's fine because we've got other ways we can do things. Sure. Absolutely. Is there any new technology that's significantly changing uh, the nature of treatment for trauma? Any new types of testing or I know virtual reality, like exposure therapy type stuff is pretty hot right now. Are you aware of, uh, are you familiar with any of those or are you aware of anything else? 
Yeah, um, there's a lot of interesting technologies. Um, so to start with virtual reality, yeah, when exposure therapy is going to be really useful for somebody, uh, VR can help. It's a little tough to do over uh, telehealth because both people have to have the same VR setup. So that's more of an in-office thing a lot of the time. Okay. Um, only thing with VR is it is really, really intense. So some people can go straight to the VR. Other people need a little more traditional exposure therapy to work their way up to the higher stimulation level of VR. Mm -hmm. um, but for example, let's say that somebody needs exposure therapy to be in a certain situation. If I've got a sophisticated enough VR setup, um, yeah, we can do the exposure therapy in virtual. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. That is um, cool. Yeah. There's also been some evidence that um, video games may be able to help with intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, stuff like that, based that on the tech research. And there's, yeah, that... some question, there's some questions about that. There's still some things to know, but um, if you look at that idea of like visual spatial memory, which just means being able to like rotate or move objects in your mind, like you would when you're playing Tetris, or even like changing where the cards are at in solitaire or something like that. Um, a lot of my clients have found that really useful. And then there's just the fact that video games are designed to grab your attention, which means they're one of the few forces powerful enough to counter intrusive thoughts or um, intrusive memories. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. What areas of trauma treatment would you like to see further research conducted on? I think, like I said before, just that area of where that trauma is not going away anytime soon. Um, like, you know, a plague like we just had where it's not like, okay, a month from now, this is going to be over and we can all recover. Um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, the deeper things that have even, an even longer history and no end in sight. Um, sexism, racism, other forms of discrimination, um, the multi-generational consequences of a war. Mm -hmm. Um one of my best friends is the son of a Holocaust survivor, like uh, someone who actually spent his late teens in Nazi work camps in Europe. Horrifying. War um, and his dad, the, the gentleman who was the one who was in the camps, just recently passed a few months ago. But um, my friend has said things like, I never knew what was wrong, but I always knew there was something. There was always a dark cloud over us. And by the time my friend came along, they were living pretty good. The dad would, um, had become a doctor. They always had a nice house, lived in a nice neighborhood, went to good schools, the basics of a safe childhood. But there was always something that was very uncertain and dark. And my friend was an adult before he knew what it was. Wow. So generational trauma can affect you even if you don't know what the trauma was. And so, like, we don't even have any solid ideas of where to go with that. Um, the biggest thing is more existential psychology. What is the nature of being? What, it, what meanings do you put on things? Um, stuff like that. So a lot of us are kind of going back to existential psychology in a way that we really haven't. It's, it's not a common modality to use in serious mental illness. Well, it's very interesting that you bring that up, though. And I kind of smiled to myself as you were mentioning mm -hmm. that, because 
I've been going through a kind of on and off existential crisis related to um, an event that triggered me about two months ago, you know? And I think that when I'm in therapy with my own therapist and I speak with her about it, what I realize is the questions and the things that trouble me about these thoughts that have occurred after the triggering event is that they're really questions of like, what is the nature of humanity? What is this reality that we exist in where there can be such horrible things happening and yet we can still be in a safe place where we don't have to be scared or alarmed? So I think that that aspect is really fascinating and it's actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately. On that note. Yeah. <laughs> and with some people are wrestling with big questions of identity. Who am I? What does that mean? Yeah, on both like a huge human level and then on that individual level, what am I in all of this mess? Yeah. And they're questions for the ages. I mean, these are things philosophers have been thinking about since the beginning of time. So it's not like we're going to be able to solve it during this conversation, but it's still important to think about and be aware of. Yeah, but that kind of synchronicity is exactly what's happening. Like different people who are kind of realizing this, we need a whole new way to treat trauma with new assumptions behind it. And then I mentioned that and you had had that experience of kind of moving towards the existential to answer some questions. That's definitely the way things are developing. Yeah. Very, very interesting stuff. Now, I wanted to uh, shift gears a little bit away from trauma because you've written a fantastic book about bipolar disorder called Understanding Bipolar Disorder, The Essential Family Guide. And it came out a couple of years ago. And I read it um, as soon as it was out because I was you know, very interested in what you had to say about that area. And I, I was actually like very genuinely impressed by your insight and advice that you had for families of people who have loved ones who are living with bipolar. So I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that book and some of the content there. First of all, what, what inspired you to specifically write a book about bipolar family dynamics? Because I feel like that's something that a lot of people overlook. I mean, that actually was just handed to me. Um, really? There's a publisher that wanted to um, have a book on that. Like they wanted somebody to write a book uh, for the families of people with bipolar. Okay. And so they kind of did some internet algorithm searches to come up with a few names of people who, um, you know, had at least a little bit of a reputation in that area. Mm -hmm. And mine was one of those. And so we were invited to submit kind of writing samples Okay. on the subject and I ended up getting the contract. Um, so that was my first big COVID project. Yeah. Um, and I really liked it because, you know, sometimes even getting the most well-intended families on board can be really difficult. Mm -hmm. Absolutely can be. And what do you think, like, what do you think the barriers there are, the key barriers that make it hard for families who want to be supportive to be able to be supportive? I mean, the biggest one is that they just don't always know what to do. So something with specific instructions in this situation, here's some stuff you can do. And this is exactly how you can handle this emergency. 
um, they just want to be able to have some instructions, some ideas of what they can do, but then also um, what to do when their own coping skills break down. Like the reasons why even the most passionate religious faith isn't always going to be enough um, to deal with the bipolar, because you're talking about a totally different set of problems than most spiritualities directly address. Um, but with that, the right spiritual community, like any community, can be hugely important in helping somebody with bipolar or any mental illness. If they're prepared to truly support that person, you know, in treatment, accepting that that person's going to need different things from them. Um, so I feel like there needed to be a guidebook with specifics, something one, I think the hardest part of writing that book, but one of the most necessary was trying to balance the family's emotional needs yeah, with their ability to support the needs of the people in the family with bipolar. Yeah. I, I can tell you, um, I, I have had one major, like truly acute psychotic episode. Uh, it was back in 2015. I, I talk about it in my book, as you know, and when I, one thing that that book doesn't really talk about is the impact that my symptoms and my behavior had on my family. And that's something that is really painful to think about, but it's really important to think about because it, it when you're living in a household with other people and someone is experiencing really bad bipolar symptoms or schizophrenic symptoms or whatever it's not just impacting that individual it's impacting the entire household dynamic and when i was reading through that book um you know years after the manic episode in 2015 i was just thinking to myself i was like i really wish that I had been able to show this book to my family members back when I was having that manic episode, because I think it would have helped spark conversations between us and help us come to more of a mutual understanding about what was happening and how I could get the help that I needed. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I guess that's just a long way of saying that that really resonated with me um, on a variety of pretty, pretty hardcore levels. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I really do genuinely mean that I, um, that's <laughs> reading that book is a large part of why I wanted to get you on the podcast. So, um, here's a, here's kind of like a alternate question. What should families not do when it comes to trying to support a bipolar family member or friend or loved one? I think one of the first things to do is you've got to throw the idea of normal out the window. Okay. Um, so don't focus on, you know, trying to make any member of the family be like, okay, normal. Mm -hmm. Cause that's not going to happen, but looking at it more in terms of like, how can they be the best them? Okay. And how can you support that? Who is yeah. this specific person? And a lot of people with mental illness for a lot of reasons, aren't really going to fit into a specific mold because even when even when they're really really stable the ones who can get to a really stable place um you know they can have the job they can have the relationship they can have the hobbies all of that they've still had very different experiences than other people and seen different things 
Um, so toss out normal in favor of what is the best that we can achieve with healing, with stability. Um, and I think one of the hardest things is that families have to kind of sort through fears about the way other people are going to see them. Hmm. So sometimes in family therapy with mental illness, there has to be that like, okay, but I have always valued, you know, getting along with the neighbors, being seen in a certain way that's maybe respectable or easygoing or something, you know, you've got a certain self-image and the person's mental illness threatens that. Um, it's one of the reasons that therapy for family members can also be useful because they get a chance to talk with somebody about that. Right. Um, because it can be really hurtful if you go to the family member with bipolar and be like, okay, but all the weirdness during the manic episodes or, you know, everybody else's kid does this, but you've got depressive episodes, so you can't do these normal social things a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, you really don't want to do that. You don't want to stigmatize like that, but sometimes they have stuff they need to talk about around that. So like a support group or a therapist can be really helpful for talking about the things that they can't really voice anyplace else. Do you mean a support group, not just for the individual with bipolar, but for right. the family as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, Got it. Um, and there's not a lot of that. Yeah. Something you can just Google and be like, okay, there it is. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, so when I was first diagnosed, um, mm -hmm. because I was having acute manic symptoms, uh, my, my parents actually required me as a condition of living with them mm -hmm. to see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues with that, um, was that they didn't understand that those conversations with the psychiatrist were private. And mm -hmm. they, so there were a lot of issues with boundaries mm -hmm. and there was one appointment um, shortly before I was dropped mm -hmm. by this psychiatrist uh, where my dad basically forced me to take him along to the appointment. And during the appointment, all it was was him just going down a laundry list of everything that was like weird or abnormal or off or wrong that I was doing. And I was just sitting there and I was like, this is unbelievable right now. I, I feel so disrespected and humiliated. I feel like my boundaries have been crossed. And um, it, it was just, I guess it was just a little bit too little too late. And an appointment with a psychiatrist isn't going to be very effective. We should have been meeting with a therapist who would have had more of an extended dialogue with us. And that probably would have been a lot more beneficial. One of the things that your book also uh, touches on that I think is extremely important and is something that I hadn't thought about before reading it is that families should, tr tr or even just individuals themselves should try to have some sort of emergency crisis plan in place if they do encounter a really acute episode. So I was wondering, what do you recommend that crisis plan look like for I, I know there's no such thing as the average bipolar individual, but just on a broad level, like what sort of things should people be thinking about uh, when they're formulating a crisis plan? Just, you know, God forbid, if if they do end up needing to go to a hospital or get like crisis intervention. Um, for one thing, I think that at least 
one or two people in the household should probably be getting a mental health first aid training. Okay. It's free. And there are a lot of online classes on the mental health first aid website. So at least a couple of people who have learned how to kind of like deescalate somebody or comfort them when they're anxious and help bring that down. Um, one of the things that most gets in the way sometimes, oddly enough, is just getting a ride to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, especially depending on the family's finances. Um, can you take, you know, can you take an ambulance? What happens if insurance refuses to pay for the ambulance? Because they deem it unnecessary for some reason. What's mm-hmm. your backup plan for getting there? Um, does, and I live in the middle of Chicago. So a very important question is, does anybody in the house even have a car? Right. And you live in a place where it's feasible to get an Uber, either financially or, you know, how long is it going to take for them to get there? So actually thinking through your plan for getting to the hospital Also understanding, you know, when it's time to hospitalize and when it might just be time to ask for an extra session. Yeah. Um, Hospitalization is only for, like forced hospitalization, at least, um, is only for situations where there is a very serious threat to life or a threat of very serious violence, either to yourself or someone else. Um, And I have that talk a lot with families when they're involved in therapy. No, we can't just throw them in the hospital because you're going on vacation. Yeah. And you need someone to check in on them. Um, We need another plan for that. And honestly, that's a big problem because there isn't a lot of intermediate care Mm -hmm. um, in that sense. No, you know, I get that they're manic. um, But that may or may not mean they need to go to the hospital. Um, let's check in with the psychiatrist to see about the meds. Um, let's check in to see if there are any kind of lifestyle changes we can make. For example, one of the classic manic symptoms, of course, is overspending. Mm-hmm. And when you're manic, you don't have that impulse control. So you might be charging up your own and everybody else's credit cards. And it'll be a while before you even think that through because that's part of the mania. Um, so who's going to grab hold of the credit cards? And that should be decided when they're not already manic, you know, when they're in some kind of, um, they're not in any kind of a major mood episode or at least something's at its mildest point. Like, okay, um, are we at the point where I need to lock up the credit cards and just give you enough cash to get by? Mm-hmm. Or um, maybe somebody tends to drive fast or, have a lot of reckless sex in ways that they normally would not. That's not typical of their usual sex life. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are we going to do? How are we going to channel that manic energy? Um, when somebody's manic, you can't stop the beat, as the Broadway <laughs> song says. So you got to figure out how you're going to channel that energy. Yeah. Um, and then with depressive episodes, um, things like, okay, you know, they're not going to shower. Okay. Can we put, a, um, you know, some makeup wipes by the bed so they can tidy up a little bit in a way that's accessible to them. Uh, they're not about cooking. Okay. Can we get some protein shakes or protein bars or something else that it, it's safe to keep by the bed or something? What, where's the problem going to be and how can we plan ahead for it? And what are the signs that maybe they're depressed enough that they need a hospital? Potentially somebody in the house who knows when and how to hide all the sharp objects if they mm-hmm. tend to self-harm. So 
the emergency plan should be really personal. And as the family gets more experience with how bipolar shows up in a specific person, they can do more of that. Yeah, I think that that's really, really, really important. It's something that after I read your book, I started more actively thinking about, and it's something I spoke with my own therapist about. And it actually, um, it, it put me in kind of a, uh, what to me felt like an uncomfortable situation. Like I had to kind of put myself out there, but I did end up um, sharing with my parents, like my therapist's contact information. And I told them, you know, if I ever end up in a hospital again, this is what I want you to do. This is like who you need to call. Um, you know, this is the the hospital that I would prefer to be at. Um, things things of that nature. I mean, it sucks and it's really scary to have to even do that. But like, I I know I definitely don't want to be a situ- in a situation like I was in a few years ago where I was detained by police and brought in that way. That was not a good way to go. Right. Um, so thank you for uh, writing about that in your book. And thank you for giving us an overview on the show as well, because I um, that's something that I've been recommending to my peers uh, who who have been having symptoms lately is like, do you have a plan? Like, do you know, like when you're going to cross the threshold? Do you know what that threshold is? And what are you going to do if that happens? Anyhow, this has been fantastic. Let me ask you about this. Let's transition a little bit and talk about your next book that you have coming up. I know you have a book coming out in February. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it's with the same publisher. This one is on relationship OCD. Interesting. So obsessive compulsive disorder where the obsessions and compulsions are focused on your relationships. A lot of time, romantic relationships, but sometimes friendships, children. Um, And that can be really damaging because it is hugely pressuring. And one of the um, kind of symptoms of relationship OCD is that you keep trying to fix your partner. Mm -hmm. Because there are these obsessions of like, okay, you know, I really want to be with them. But, you know, what if I lose my physical attraction to them? Or what if I can't stand, you know, that they're this little bit messier than I am? Like they're like average tidy, not like OCD level tidy. Although that actually is one of kind of the stigmas of OCD. Oh, you mean you're really tidy? Yeah. Not always. It can go very differently than that. But yeah, I would say it's a like little that. bit more, a little bit more than tidiness. Tiny bit, yeah. Um, and like a lot of people I know with OCD absolutely hate it when somebody's like, oh my God, you know, I spent all weekend cleaning house. I'm so OCD. Mm-hmm. Unless that was an absolutely agonizing, pressuring experience, no, you're probably not. Yeah. Um, so, but the book goes into this whole idea of what happens when your OCD focuses directly on fears about your relationship ending or fears about you losing your attraction to your partner or not really loving your children if they're not perfect enough for you. Mm -hmm. And it's, this one is directed at and for people with OCD, but Mm -hmm. I also do try and present some of the partner's perspective. Like I, I know, you know, this is kind of what it feels like in your head when you're experiencing, you know, 
I'm only nagging them to, you know, lose weight or dress better or, you know, do something else different because I want the relationship to work. But understanding that to the partner, that can feel somewhere between really, really annoying and outright abusive. Mm -hmm. You know, it absolutely can get to the point where it is experienced by the partner as emotional abuse. I really like this publisher because they get let me go all kinds of places. That's great. I, I definitely don't have to, um, you know, clean things up the way I would with some other publishers. Where, what kind of things have you been able to incorporate that you were a little maybe surprised that this current publisher uh, was able to keep in? Well, they were all over, you know, being allowed to, they didn't want it to be too dark, but in as encouraging a, a way as possible, talking about how, you know, that kind of OCD can, can be experienced as abuse by partners and children and other people. And another thing is that um, there are a lot of sexual obsessions. Like, you know, you can't have sex unless your partner has done an absolutely meticulous job of their hygiene within like the last five or 10 minutes, mm -hmm. or you're needing them to take STD tests when there's oh, absolutely okay. no reason to think they've gotten STD, but that's what the compulsions need you to do. Wow. Okay. Um, so the sexual piece was one I got to be pretty direct about. And I think that's a really important one. That was an important place not to have to pull my punches. Extremely important. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's definitely a key element of relationships <laughs> that I think a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about because it's a, you know, it's an intimate topic, but it, sexual chemistry uh, and compatibility is like one, one of the most important things in any long-term relationship. <laughs> So I think that's great that you were able to um, touch on that in, in the book. Of course, now in this situation in the book, it, it sounds like this would be directed more toward individuals who have like cl clinical levels of mm -hmm. like yeah. hangups when it comes to certain sexual activity or right. relationships or what have you. Okay. That's directly the, um, I am obsessed with sexual hygiene and the compulsions are telling me do not have sex with this person I've known for, you know, five, 10, 20 years, unless mm. I make them take a test. Wow. Or wash again or something like that. Yeah. What are some other key things that the book focuses on? Um, the main kind of treatment modality that it deals in is CBT, which for OCD really ex um, exposure and response prevention is, you know, without question, kind of the, the main treatment for that. But I also go into different ways to use mindfulness. And I think a lot of people have been exposed to that, like on a TikTok level <laughs> or on a go meditate kind of level. But there's these whole other levels. Sometimes I'd like to, or someday I'd like to write a book on mindfulness that goes into like really deeper aspects of it, where it's not just a shallow suggestion from somebody who, you know, doesn't want to deal with you right now. Could you explain mindfulness for the audience? Yeah. Mindfulness is just, having conscious control over where you direct your attention and you're trying to direct it to whatever's going on in the here and now. It has kind of a mystical flavor to it. Sometimes it doesn't have to, it really is about basically your attention is key to controlling a lot of symptoms of mental illness, especially anything anxiety related. You can't feel anxiety for something you're not paying attention to. So when you learn how to consciously direct your attention, 
then um, you have a lot more control over your symptoms. And that's a really hard thing to do. We're not talking, okay, do this for five minutes for a week and you're going to see big, big results. You're going to see small results. You're going to see some results most of the time, but then also it's not just about, you know, breathing, you know, there's like that Instagram, TikTok level of like, you have to do the box breathing. That's the right way to breathe. There's no right way to breathe. And for people with asthma or long COVID where there's lung problems or something, deep breathing, really bad idea. (laughs) Yeah. Plus, like you said earlier, uh, mindfulness meditation has a lot of side effects for people with really intense intrusive thoughts, which people with OCD ha- tend to have. So there's a whole different w- way of doing that kind of redirecting your attention consciously to stay in the moment. This more mindful awareness, what can, what activity can you do? What can you listen to um, that will keep at least some of your attention on something that is not your anxiety, your compulsions. And again, that's a long road. That's a lot of training. That's not like this is going to go really, really well within a week. Right. There's uh, no there's no panacea like that. Right. So when you go a little bit deep with it, it um, actually is a lot more helpful than kind of the superficial level. Just breathe or breathe in this exact correct way. Um, in fact, if you've got lung problems, any kind, do not do the breathing kind of mindfulness. <laughs> Um, so that's something also just talking about a few basic relationship skills, how to start a conversation about a tough subject, how to make different kinds of plans, different kinds of, uh, charts or journaling that can help a lot, especially with figuring out what your triggers are. If you haven't already, um, tracking exposure therapy to see what's working and what's not. So you don't waste too much time on an approach that isn't necessarily working for you. It's got a lot more kind of practical exercises than the bipolar book. Yeah, it, it sounds very, um, I, I don't want to say goal-directed, but I, I guess it kind of is a book that tells people how to become more goal-directed when it comes to tackling relationship OCD. Right. And with OCD, there are often, you know, deeper things that I couldn't... F- fully cover in a book anyway. So that's kind of like, okay, there are these things that um, you might need to work with um, deeper thoughts and beliefs that are driving the OCD. You know, here's Mm -hmm. some surface level stuff you can do with them. Here are some cognitive distortions that are pretty common. Here are some ways to challenge them, but there's going to come a point when you probably are going to need some help other than a book. So I wrote the book as much as possible for somebody who maybe does not have access to a therapist. So they can make as much progress by themselves as possible, or they're nervous about going to a therapist and they want to kind of sample what that might be like. Um, And I'm very clear about the fact that like, if it's true OCD, the ideal is that you have a therapist and a psychiatrist, right? Or at least the therapist. Um, But this book is written. So if that's not available to you, here's some things you can still do. Yeah. Absolutely. Sounds like a fantastic resource for people to have. So what's the full title of this book and uh, where will people be able to find it once it's out? Um, It's just called Relationship OCD. Okay. Um, And any major online retailer. Um, So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, 
bookshops.org, which I like because that's one that makes a point of kind of buying through small books, local bookstores and supporting them. Awesome. So if you, if you're uncomfortable supporting the Amazon machine, (laughs) which I get, I respect it. There's always Barnes and Noble. Um, but there's also this bookshops.org where you can actually support local bookshops. That's awesome. I love that. So Mm -hmm. Relationship OCD by Dr. Amy Doremus out in February 2023. Correct? Target um, date is February 28th. And that usually means there's going to be kind of a soft opening where it's up, but it's not really announced or anything, usually around mid-month. I think it would be honestly kind of funny if they put the book on Relationship OCD out on February 14th. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the official date is february 28th well that would be a great valentine's day gift for a loved one relationship ocd well i'll certainly be keeping an eye out for that um is there anything else you're working on right now that you'd like to plug any uh any projects any social media yeah um so there is a children's book i don't have a date out for it yet that i wrote the afterword for it's called manny's mood clouds um, the author is Lords Obidia. I only really know her from Instagram. Um, and then only a little bit, but it is this amazing children's picture book about mood disorders. And That's the main amazing. character is a little boy whose brother has a mood disorder. And the whole book is about how the family adapts to it and talks about it. That's so cool. That it sounds is. really interesting. Is that, um, is that out already? Did, did you say? Um, no, I haven't seen a release date for it. It's on, it's for sale on Amazon, but they haven't actually given a date when it's going to come out. Oh, okay. Well, I'll still include that in the episode description so people can uh, try to find it because that sounds really, really cool. I love hearing about um, educational outreach for for young kids like that because as, as you, of course, know, mental health problems impact people at all ages, from all backgrounds, and a lot of kids don't know how to navigate them or are even aware that things like that can exist. So I think it's really important that people become aware of that at an early age. I think it's something that we should be teaching kids more about. And it it does tie into things like emotional intelligence and other qualities that can really positively benefit people. And just lets kids know that there are safe adults around that they can talk to if something bad happens. Yeah. Or if they're afraid of something bad happening. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're right at one hour. So I just wanted to ask if you have anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap up, if you have any questions for me about anything, if you have any advice or commentary for anyone who may be listening, I'd love to hear it just thank you so much for the work you're doing. Like you really lay it all out there in a really raw way that I think is really valuable. Oh, thank you. Um, I think one of the hardest parts about having a mental illness is how alone you feel. And then now you and a lot of other people are being very public and people actually get to say, okay, there's this person out there. They get what I'm going through. They get what I get. Um, They have similar feelings. You know, I'm not alone and can learn from other people's experience. So thank you for that. Absolutely. I I always try to tell people that you're never alone. I know it sounds like such a cliche, but it I know that when I was first diagnosed and I was going through 
a manic episode and I was for the first time, you know, my doctors were trying to put me on medication and stuff. I didn't have any friends around me who I could like reach out to or talk to. This was way before, you know, Twitter spaces was active or I was aware of, I didn't know that there were like peer support groups organized by groups like NAMI or DBSA that I could get peer support from. And it was incredibly isolating and it really, really took a tremendous toll on me. Um, I think that if I had known that I wasn't the only one going through stuff like that and I had had people to reach out to for advice and guidance, my outcomes would have been a lot different. I think I would have been able to have avoided hospitalization. So that's absolutely huge. And thank you for bringing that up. All right, Amy, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. And um, maybe we'll be able to get you back on in the future if you'd like. Maybe once your new book comes out, uh, we can have you back on and uh, chat some more. I would love that. Thanks a lot. Awesome. When I say you're never alone, I don't think of it in some sort of frilly, sunshine, daydream way. I think about it in the way Randy Blythe sings it in the Lamb of God song, Walk With Me in Hell. Check out the show description to find links for things that will make you feel not alone. There is a creepy, intense force that seems to bind us together as people who live with mental illness. I don't know if it's something in the air or what, but we just see the world differently, just like Amy said during this recording. While no one's mental health symptoms manifest precisely the same way, we share a common web of similar experiences, and together we grow in our recovery and learn from our setbacks. Amy's book, Relationship OCD, will be out in February, and I strongly recommend you check out her other book called Understanding Bipolar Disorder, The Essential Family Guide in the Meantime. Links to her work can be found in the episode description. I hope you all have been enjoying hearing from the subject matter experts in the field of psychology. Remember that we love featuring new guests on the show, and you can reach out on Twitter, BipolarRecorder.com, or via email if you'd potentially like to be featured as a guest. Bipolar Recorder is on Twitter, at Bipolar Recorder. I'm going to keep that ship afloat for as long as possible before Elon Musk tanks the whole thing. If the grid goes down, you can always find info about Bipolar Recorder at our official website, BipolarRecorder.com. You can support Bipolar Recorder simply by telling your friends about it throwing us some five-star ratings on Spotify or Apple Podcasts if you think we deserve them. You can also post episode links on social media or visit BipolarRecorder.com to check out merchandise. As you may have noticed, so far I am continuing to avoid intrusive advertisements and annoying sponsorships for this project 
Proceeds from my books and donations on Patreon help me keep the show running. Creating podcasts does cost a lot of money and time, so any contributions are greatly appreciated. And just know that we really, really value all of you who are supporting this project. It's just amazing. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thank you for listening, and have a lovely day, evening, or night, wherever you are. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.